Brilliant. Can I just see a show of hands quickly for people that enjoy watching films? Everyone. Same in the morning service. Everyone seems to enjoy watching films. <laughs> Probably because most of you are the same as the people in the morning service. Anyway, in any good film or any good story, you'll get a point where the story sort of culminates. Where it's like a turning point in the whole film, basically. Everything seems to be leading up to this point. Everything after seems to be affected by that point. It's like it's the centre of the whole film. You get that in Star Wars, for example, in The Empire Strikes Back, in the old trilogy, where Luke Skywalker suddenly discovers that Darth Vader is actually his father. And as a result, the whole of the next film is changed. <laughs> Steph's trying to, trying to make fun of me here. Of <laughs> 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 any Lord of the Rings fans around? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And, and in the second Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, you get Gandalf the White, who comes back from the dead. And as a result, the whole of the next film changes, because there's this hope that's suddenly back. It's like, Gandalf's back, we can take on the bad guys now. And the same is true of the Bible. There's a central point in the Bible. There's a central message of the whole Bible. And if you've been with us for the last five weeks, we've been doing a series on law and grace. We've been looking at these two massive biblical doctrines. The idea of the law, so the Jewish law, that the the Jews were under these commandments from the Old Testament. You might have heard of it spoken as the Torah. Basically, these these laws, you shall not commit adultery, you shall have no other gods, you shall shall make no idols, you shall not covet. And basically, the Jews had to live under these these laws. And we're trying to figure out how how that works together with this doctrine of grace. The idea that God accepts us as we are. The idea that God gives us what we don't deserve, basically. And we've been doing that over the last, um, last five weeks. And today, we're going to be looking at what I think is the central message of the whole Bible. In other words, the whole of the Old Testament points towards this. The whole of the New Testament points back towards this. It's basically a summary of the Gospel. If you have to explain to someone what the Gospel is and you don't know where to look, what we're going to be looking at tonight, the passage is pretty much just a description of the Gospel. So if you have your Bibles, could you please turn to the book of Romans, chapter 3. And we're going to read bit by bit from verses 9 to 26. We're going to take it in chunks so that you guys can see the logic of Paul, who's writing this letter. And my title today is this, Good Guys Go to Heaven. Good Guys Go to Heaven. Now, for some of you cynical people out there who might be like, is this a trick trick statement or something, I just want to prove that the Bible actually does teach this. The Bible teaches that good guys go to heaven. So if we can have the first slide up, we've got a passage from Romans 2. Romans 2, 6 to 7 says this, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. So in other words, if you do good, if you seek for glory and honour and immortality, if if you're patient in well-doing, you will inherit eternal life, you'll get eternal life, you'll go to heaven. Good guys go to heaven. So can we have the next one up? A bit further on in chapter 2, Paul says this, there we go. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So in other words, if, if you do the law, if you don't just hear the law, if, if you don't just look at the law and read it, but you actually do the law, you obey every command, you'll go to heaven. You'll be justified. You'll be righteous before God. God will forgive you. You'll, just, you'll be able to have a relationship with God as a result. Can we have the next one up? This is from the mouth of Jesus himself. It says this in Matthew 5, 20. It says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never in- enter the kingdom of heaven. If you put it the other way around, if your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes of the Pharise- and the Pharisees, you will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, if you're good enough, if you're righteous enough, if you're more righteous than these guys, then you will inherit the kingdom of God. So the Bible teaches it, it, it it's central. The Bible teaches that good guys, if you're good enough, you go to heaven. Now there is a problem with this statement, but the problem doesn't lie in the statement itself. The problem lies with every single one of us. The problem lies with the whole of humanity. And the passage we're looking at today 
highlights the problem really vividly and then gives us a solution. So we're going to spend some time looking at this problem first. We're going to spend some time grappling with the problem so that we can then understand why the solution is so necessary. And the problem is this. Paul sets out his, his argument for the first three chapters of Romans and culminates in the passage we're going to read. And his argument is this, basically. The whole of humanity is bad. The whole of humanity is sinful. And so for the first three chapters of Romans, from, ver- from chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And, and he goes on to describe depraved Gentile society, depraved pagans, and he says that they exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. They sleep around, they get drunk, they lie, they, they just, they're just terrible. And he describes them, he, he uses very strong language. If you've ever read the second half of Romans chapter 1, you'll know what I mean. He uses incredibly strong language to describe this depraved, non-Jewish society. And then in, in chapter 2, he says this, but you guys who criticise them, who stand there and say, look, they're, they're, they're rubbish, you'll know better off, because you do exactly the same things as them. So in other words, you're, you guys are standing there going, terrible, terrible pagans, look at them. Orgies, drunkenness. Just terrible. And then you go off and sleep with your girlfriend. You're no better off. You do exactly the same things. You condemn yourself by judging them. And then in the second half of chapter 2, Paul goes on to the Jews, who are a different class altogether. He says, you guys have got the law. God, you're God's chosen people. He's given you the law, but even you guys can't obey it. Even though you've got the law, you're, you're no more righteous than anyone else. And he actually says, because you, you, you dishonour God by obeying the law, because you don't obey the law, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So Paul's big argument for the first three chapters of Romans is this. Everyone, Jew, Gentile, black, white, everyone, every person, every age, every race, every sex is sinful. And this is, like, this is Paul's death blow in the passage we're going to read from verses 9 to 18. This is Paul's death blow. It's like he's just lobbing off the head of any possible escape from this problem. And I just want you, when, when we're reading it, I just want you to think this. This is a description of every single person here if they're not in Christ. It's a description of every single one of us by nature. So let's read from verses 9 to 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And the way of peace, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I just want you to imagine that you're reading this passage to one of your, your non-Christian mates at uni or just an average Joe blogs on the street, some of your, maybe one, one of your work colleagues. They would look at you as if you were an absolute idiot. No one thinks of themselves like this. You don't meet someone in the street who thinks of themselves like this. No one would describe themselves with these terms. No one likes being described with these terms. I mean, who here would like to be described like this? If you do, you're, you're really weird. No one wants to be described like this. It's offensive. I mean, can you just imagine going up to someone and saying, oh, by the way, um, your throat is an open grave. The very words you speak stink of death. It's offensive. It's, It's nasty. You don't want to be described like that. But the truth is that the whole of humanity, this is a description of the whole of humanity. And if I was to stand here today and just brush over this passage and tell you, actually, it doesn't really apply to us. We're all right, actually. 
I mean, it was for nasty people in the first century AD. Paul was writing to a really, really bad church, and he was just telling them off. If I was to tell you that it doesn't apply to us, then it would be like this. It would be like you're going to the doctors because you're scared because you found a lump. You think, I might have cancer. You go to the doctor, and the doctor does tests, and you go back home, and the test results come back, and it turns out you've got cancer. And you go back to the doctors, and even though the doctor knows very well you've got cancer, he chooses to say, you're fine. He says, you're fine. You haven't got cancer. And the patient is delighted. The patient loves it. The patient loves the fact that the whole fear is taken away. He's just like, yes, I haven't got cancer. I'm not going to die of cancer. And it sounds brilliant. It sounds lovely to the ears. It's brilliant until the patient dies. And in the same way, if I was to stand here and tell you that everyone here is fine, that actually everyone's good, that there's no problem whatsoever, it would sound brilliant. I mean, who doesn't like a good pat on the back? Who Who doesn't like being told that they're all right? It sounds brilliant until we die and find out that we're not all right and go to hell. The Bible is offensive and we need to preach everything that's in there. If we don't preach everything that's in there, we're preaching a false gospel. We're not preaching the true gospel. We're preaching a a little distortion that pleases man. And we're not here to please man. We're here to please God. So we're going to look at this passage and we're going to see how it describes us, how it it describes us. We're going to get into the the details just so that we can understand why we need the solution that we're going to look at later. Now, Paul here, basically, he he comes up against one of the the biggest and most sinful human human attitudes of of the human heart, which is self-righteousness. The idea that actually, I'm not that bad. Pride, just, I'm not really, I'm I'm a good person, I think. And some of you might think that. Some of you might be here and thinking, I'm not bad. I was brought up in a Christian family. I don't get drunk. I don't sleep around. I mean, I go to church every Sunday. Pretty good, to be honest. I'm not like some people. I'm not a murderer. Well, this passage knocks our self-righteous legs out from beneath us. You cannot understand this passage and be self-righteous. You cannot get this passage. You cannot get this text. You can't let it infiltrate your heart and still claim self-righteousness. You can't look at this passage and say, I'm all right. It's not possible. You can't do that. And we're going to look at why you can't do that. So what I've decided to do, because we haven't got time to go through the whole thing, is I'm going to take what I think are the three most offensive and unpopular and controversial statements in the whole passage. So basically, we're getting the worst of the worst. We're getting the, 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 really the worst description we could get of ourselves, but it's the truth. So offensive statement number one, which I've chosen, is this. In verse 9... You have the slide. It says this. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, are under sin. Now, if you were around in the first century AD when, when Jesus was alive, the world, uh, the world could have been d- divided into two categories religiously. You'd have Jews and non-Jews or, or Gentiles. It's like you have cat and dog people. They're not usually the same people. Or you've got people who have the glass half full, people who have the glass half empty. You could have divided the world into two broad categories religiously. And what Paul does here is he takes both categories. He says Jews and Gentiles, or Greeks as he names them here. It's the same thing, non-Jews. And he puts them together, lumps them together and says, all of them are under sin. All of them are sinners. Now, what, what does this mean? I just want to explain quickly what it means to be under sin so that you don't, you don't get the wrong end of the stick because some of you are going to be thinking, wait a minute, does that mean God creates us evil? Does that mean God just creates us as these nasty beings who are basically the, the aim of our, our lives is to be nasty? Well, that's not true because if you, if you go to Genesis, if you've read the book of Genesis, it's basically the beginning, the first three chapters of Genesis is a description of how God created the heavens, God created the earth, God created everything. 
And it says that when God created everything, he created everything good. He looked at his creation and said, it is good. And in fact, when, he, when he'd finished his whole creation with mankind, he said, it's very good. And he decided to create man in his own image, create mankind in his own image. What does that mean? It means that there's something, of, something godlike in us. There's something of the, of, of the nature of God within every single one of us. And God creates us in his image. And he said, look, you guys go and multiply, go and populate the whole world and display my glory in the whole of creation. Go and, go and spread my image to the whole of creation. So have lots of babies, spread to loads of different nations and fill the world with my image. That was our commission. That was the commission to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And basically, Adam and Eve blew it. They had a direct order from God. God said, you can eat every single fruit from any tree in the whole garden, but you can't have this particular tree. Don't touch that particular tree, because the day you touch that tree, the day you eat that tree, you will die. And what does mankind do? Mankind chooses to eat the fruit from the tree. Mankind chooses to rebel against God. And as a result, the whole of the creation came under a curse because of sin. The image of God was distorted. It wasn't taken away. You're still made in the image of God, but the image was distorted. It's like... It's like, it's like it's, got, it's got old and rusty and it's covered in, covered in moss and everything. It's, just, it's, it's distorted. It's not taken away. But as a result, man came under sin. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying everyone, the whole of creation, is under sin. And this isn't, this, to be honest, this isn't something that a lot of people like. I think if, you talk, if you talk to people and say, basically, by nature, every single person is a sinner. They're just born that way. It's not a very popular thing. You, you don't find a lot of people who like that. I think it might be one, it's probably one of the Christian ideas that are the most unpopular. The, this idea that we're actually born in sin. By, just by being born, you are born into sin as a result of one man's, one man's rebellion against God. You're born into sin. And a lot of people get the, get, don't get it right. They think, wait, wait a minute, no, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm not, I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. I, sure, I do some bad things sometimes. No, you're not. This passage says you're a bad person who does bad things. It's not just an issue of doing wrong things. It's being bad in ourselves. I don't just do bad things. I am bad by nature. I do bad things because I'm bad. I don't do bad things and then, and then think, oh, that's not in line with who I am. No, no, I'm bad in and of myself by nature because I'm, I'm born under sin. I naturally am attracted to sin. I naturally want to sin because I'm bad in my very nature. It's like being under sin is a bit like being, being a pilot in a plane which is in autopilot mode and trying to land it. It's not possible. You're under someone else's control. You're not, you're not under your own will. You're not under your own authority. You're under the autopilot's authority. In other words, you, you, can, you can turn the joystick and do whatever pilots do to try and land the plane, but you can't do anything because ultimately the plane is under someone else's control. And if you're not in Christ, if, if, if you haven't given your life over to Jesus, if you haven't put your faith in Christ then you're under someone else's control, not your, not your own. You can't control your life. You're ultimately under this power of sin. So that's my offensive statement number one, that we are all sinners by nature. We're all born under sin. Offensive statement number two, verse 12a, says this. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. Now, some of you theologically-minded people here might be thinking, wait a minute, I know this whole thing of original sin, the fact that we're born in sin. Does, this basically means I don't get a choice. I don't even get any say in the whole matter. Basically, God just damns me to hell because of someone else's action. Well, Paul doesn't let us get away with that either. The language he uses here is of a clear decision to go against God. He says, all have turned aside. You don't just happen to turn aside. You have to make a a conscious effort to turn aside. And we did that with God. We did that with God. 
We saw God's offer in creation of glorifying him, of enjoying, of, of enjoying making much of him. And God said, look, will you glorify me? Will you live? Will you bear my image and populate the whole world? And we said, no, I'm not, I'm not, good. I'm not doing that. I'm doing my own thing. I'm going to follow my own desires. I'm going to follow my own ambitions. I'm going to rebel against you. No, I don't want your offer. I want myself. And as a result, we turn away from God and we become worthless. And the implication is this. We choose to go to hell. You think, what? Surely doesn't God send people to hell? No, God sends us to hell because we choose to go to hell. By virtue of sinning, every single person here chose hell. You take too much child benefit, you choose hell. You commit adultery, you choose hell. You gossip behind someone's back unhealthily, you choose hell. Everyone here chose hell. Every single one of us. We said, no, thank you, God, I'm not taking your offer, I'm going the other way, I'm taking the consequences of that action, and the consequence is eternal punishment. Because we rebelled against God. We chose to do that. So number one, we're under sin. Number two, we have all chosen to turn aside and go away. And as a result, we become worthless. We just, it's just like, it's just, we're just rotten. We just, we just, it's just, we're just pathetic as a result. And number three, verse 12, the end of verse 12, it says this. And this is probably going to be the hardest to digest for a lot of you. No one does good, not even one. This is a shocking statement. This is an absolutely shocking statement because if you think of the implications of this verse, they are massive. Paul is saying this. No one in the whole world... That Paul, basically, logic says no one in the whole world does good. What does this mean? What does this mean for people who give up their lives for justice? What does this mean for people who spend their lives giving money to the poor, feeding the hungry, who spend their lives trying to get rid of AIDS, trying to get rid of other diseases, trying to make life better for the poorest of the poor? What does this mean for them? It means this. Even though there's value in what they do, even though what they do ultimately is, is good in itself, when it comes to your standing before God, when it comes to their standing before a righteous God, it doesn't change anything. They are no, more, they are no better off with God because they do that stuff than a murderer. That's the logic here. A murderer is no better off, or no worse off, than someone who's in, who's in Africa helping people with AIDS. That is shocking. That's what Paul's saying here. In fact, in Isaiah, it tells us this. It says, our righteous deeds, our righteous efforts are like polluted garments. In other words, if, if we're trying to be justified by our own efforts, if we're trying to get God's forgiveness with our own efforts, it's like offering him bloodied rags. So, I mean, just imagine a birthday party and you come up to someone and you say, here's your gift, and they open it, and there's just torn, muddy, bloodied, soiled garments in there. That's what it's like when you try to please God with your own efforts. That's what it's like when you try to get justified by your own efforts. It's like offering bloodied rags to God. In Romans 8, <laughs> verse 8, it says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you're not in Christ here today, you cannot do anything in and of yourself to change your standing before God. It's not possible. It is impossible to do that. Paul Washer, an American preacher, says this. He says, the issue isn't that we've sinned. The issue is that we've never done anything but sin. No one does good. Not even one. That's what it means. That is a shocking statement. I hope you guys are getting how, how, how radical this language is. I hope you guys are getting how, how deep the problem is. That we are under sin. That we've chosen to go to hell, ultimately. That we've chosen to rebel against God. And that ultimately, anything that we do... Anything that we do is, is just worthless with, in, in, in trying to get right with God. You just cannot do it. We're, none of us do good. So those are my top three. And some of you might disagree. Some of you might think, wait a minute, I, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. 
I don't think I'm bad. I don't, th I don't think humanity's bad. I don't. What are you going on about? It must be wrong. I just want to tell you this. If I could take every single one of your thoughts that you've ever thought and put it up on this screen, you would run out of here as fast as you could and you would never want anyone to see you again because you have thought things so evil and so dark that you wouldn't even want your best friend to know about it. If you knew what I had done in my life, if you knew what I had thought, if you knew what I had said, if you knew what I'd looked at, you would not want me up here teaching you. You probably wouldn't even want to know me. You would just look at me in disgust. But guys, we're all in the same boat. Every single one of us is under sin. Every single one of us has chosen to rebel against God. Now, how does the law fit in with this? It just makes things even worse. I mean, you thought it was bad. This just makes it even worse. Verses 9, 19 to 20. You can have them up on the screen. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law makes you accountable to God. It means that you've got a standard set, which ultimately you realise that you cannot reach. It's not possible to reach it. So you see the commandments, you see you shall have no other gods except God. And you think, oh, I messed that up. I got more excited about my car than Jesus yesterday. I got more excited about my girlfriend than Jesus yesterday. I loved football more yesterday than Jesus. You think you shall not cover it. You think, oh, failed again. I thought lustfully about someone last week or I wanted something so much that someone else had that I came to hate the person. You failed. Every single one of us fails when it comes to being justified by the law. And some of you might, might be here sitting here and thinking, well, look, to be honest, I'll get to heaven. I'll get to, I'll get, I'll get to judgment day and I'll just say, look, come on, bring on the law and I'll... I'll show you I'm all right. No, you won't. You'll take one look at the judge, Jesus Christ, and you'll suddenly realise that actually you're not good. Actually, you, you have not kept the law whatsoever. You cannot be justified by the law and you'll crumble in front of him. And so I'm pleading with you, please do not try to be justified by the law. Please don't try to be justified by your own efforts. It's not possible. All the law can do is show you where you fail. It says you fail here, you fail here, you fail here, you fail here, and it shows us our ultimate depravity. It shows us that in, inside we, we just can't do anything to get right with God. Trying to be justified by the law is like trying to plead your case with a policeman who's caught you murdering someone red-handed. You cannot do it. So if good guys go to heaven, if what we've looked at earlier on is true, then we fail right from the start. That's our problem. If good guys go to heaven, we fail, every one of us. No one in the whole of history except Jesus can claim that they are good. We fail now, the reason I've spent so long talking about sin and depressing you guys is that I want you to understand that if, if you get the problem, if you understand the extent of the problem, if you, if you get how depraved humans are because of the fall, because of their sin, because of their rebellion against God, then you will understand the solution and give glory to God so much more because of the awesomeness of the solution. Because the problem is that we are appalling sinners. Every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. But the solution is this. Jesus Christ is an amazing, amazing saviour. He really is. We're going to read verses 21 to 26 now. And I want you guys to think of the backdrop of verses 9 to 20. I want you guys to think about the fact that we are depraved. We chose to rebel against God. We are in desperate need. We can't do anything to get right with God. And read these verses and you will love Jesus so much more for it. Verse 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, every single one of us, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we've got a problem. We are all sinners by nature. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And ultimately you see that the law cannot justify us because we fall short of the law. Trying to be justified by the law is like trying to go over a toll bridge that you can't afford. You're stuck. You, just, you get to the barrier and you're like, I can't afford this. I'm not righteous enough. Nothing that I do can help me over this bridge. And God sees that. And he says, my law is put in place to show my righteous standard. They cannot get over that bridge. It's not possible. And Paul says this, that as a result, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, God's put another bridge in in place, completely free of charge. So you you see this toll bridge of the law where you can't get in because you're, you're just so sinful, and God puts in faith a, complete, a bridge completely free of charge, the bridge of faith. You put your faith in Christ Jesus and you can cross over to righteousness. You can be reconciled to God. You can be forgiven. You can be freed from slavery to sin as a result of putting your faith in Jesus Christ. That, the result is every single person here, however bad they are, however much they've, they've failed, however, however many, many times they've done wrong, However bad they think they are, if they put their faith in Jesus Christ, they can be saved, they can be forgiven, they can be redeemed and set free. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing that we put our faith in Christ Jesus, however bad we are, and we can be forgiven. I just want to ask you one question about that. Where's the justice in that statement? Where's the justice in that statement? What do you mean, where's the justice? I put my faith in Jesus and God forgives me. Okay. What about the rapist? What about the child molester? What about the guy who beats his wife and then threatens to kill her if she tells anyone? Because the logic here is if they put their faith in Christ, then they'll be saved. They'll be forgiven. How could God just forgive someone like that? How could, how could God forgive the rapist? How could God forgive the child molester? Where's the justice? How could God forgive, if he came to repentance, Joseph Fritzl? If you guys haven't heard of Joseph Fritzl, there's been a lot in the newspapers about him. He imprisoned his own daughter in his cellar for 24 years, oblivious to everyone, and raped her for 24 years. And the logic of this passage is if this guy puts his faith in Christ, he will be forgiven. Where is the justice in that? And the logic actually is even more than that. It's this guy can be, can be forgiven if he puts his faith in Christ, whereas the, person, the charity worker, the AIDS worker in South Africa, if he doesn't come to repentance, will go to hell. Where is the justice in that? Or more to the point, how can God justify us? If what we've looked at in verses 9 to, 10, 9 to 18 is true, how can God just forgive us? Where's the justice? I mean, can you just imagine going to Joseph Fritzl's case at the court and the judge just goes, don't worry, I'll forgive you. You would be outraged. Where's the justice? I'll tell you where the justice is. God's justice was worked out 2,000 years ago on a rubbish dump outside of Jerusalem as a bloodied wreck 
of a man hung on a cross with nails through his wrists, nails through his feet, his back ripped apart by the scourging, unable to scream in pain because he was so weak. God's righteousness and God's justice were manifested by the fact that Jesus Christ bore our sins on the cross 2,000 years ago. The fact that Jesus Christ took our penalty, the fact that Jesus Christ took our shame, took our guilt, and was nailed to the cross and bore it for every single one of us. That's where the justice of God is. For all have sinned, every single one of us here, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And some of you might feel that. Some of you might have come come in this evening thinking, I just feel so bad about myself. I've messed up again. I've done that again. I went on that website again. I lied to that person again. I talked to that person in the wrong way again. I'm just aware of my failures. And you came in and you've been sitting through the first 20 minutes just thinking, my goodness, I didn't come to the right place. And you're saying, Dan, you don't need to tell me I'm bad. I know that I'm sinful. I know that I'm depraved. And it would be easy for me to just stand here and put my hand around you and say, don't worry, you're not that bad. Paul doesn't think like this. Paul says this, you think you're bad? You think you're bad? You're far worse than you think. But God does not accept you on that basis. God does not accept you on the basis of your merit. He doesn't accept you on the basis of your own righteousness. He doesn't accept you on the basis of how well you've done, how successful you are, how many friends you've got. He accepts you on this basis and this basis alone, that his son bore your sin, died on the cross, took your punishment 2,000 years ago. That is the only basis by which we are forgiven. That is where God's justice was worked out. Now, Paul uses two words here that we're going to look at quickly to describe what Jesus did at the cross. And the first one is this, redemption. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption, basically, I'm I'm sure a lot of you probably actually know what redemption means, so we're not going to spend too long on it. But redemption is the idea that a price needs to be paid. If you were alive when uh, when Jesus or Paul was um, was writing here, you, you, you would have had slave markets, and you could choose to redeem a slave at the slave market. You could go to the market and say, look, I'll, I'll take that slave, I'll pay the price, and he belongs to me. In other words, there's a transfer of property. You go from belonging to the slave master to belonging to your new owner. There's a price to be paid. It's this, this idea that a price needs to be paid, and every single person in the whole world has a price tag on them. Do you know what that price tag is? It's the blood of the Son of God. That's what our sin required. Our sin required the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to be crucified and punished for our sake. That's what our sin required. The the only payment that's great enough to pay the debt that we have to God is Jesus Christ's own death on the cross. So God paid to buy us, to buy us back so that we belong to him and that we don't belong to our old self anymore, to our old rubbishness anymore, that we belong to to Christ and to Christ alone. So that's the first one. That's redemption. And the second term is propitiation. And I'm thinking that probably less of you know what this means. You probably just read the passage and sort of jump over it thinking it probably means the same thing as redemption. But actually propitiation is the idea that God is angry at our sin. That God is furious at our sin. He needs to be because he's a just God. And if he wasn't furious at our sin, he wouldn't be just. And the idea of propitiation is that Jesus Christ bore the wrath that we deserve, the wrath that was stored up for every human being in the whole of humanity, and that he bore that on the cross. 
I want you to imagine that you're, you're standing in front of God, this awesome and holy judge, and there's this, just this massive ball of wrath against your sin, this ball of fury, anger that you do not want to tangle with on the day of judgment. You do not want to get in the way of this. And it's just growing and growing, and you can see it grow. The more you sin, the more it grows, the more angry God gets with your sin. And propitiation is this, is that God turns around, and instead of chucking it all on you, he chucks it onto his son. And Jesus Christ absorbs. It's like he absorbs the whole wrath of God. He takes the wrath that we deserve, and he drunk the cup of God's wrath to the dregs. Before Jesus went to the cross, the, the Gospels report the fact that he, he went to a garden to pray. And, in that, and, and whilst he was praying to his father, he said, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any way that this cup can be taken away from me, please provide it. Jesus was, was pleading momentarily for an alternative to the cross. And actually, I don't, I don't think he was, he was that scared about the cross compared to what was in the cup. What was in the cup that he was talking about wasn't the cross, it wasn't the nails. It was God's furious and vengeful, vengeful wrath at our sin. That was what caused Jesus to momentarily appeal for an alternative, saying, please, Father, if there's any other way. He saw the intensity of God's wrath, he saw the intensity of our sin, and it scared him to have to bear the wrath of God. That's propitiation. That is propitiation, the fact that Jesus Christ absorbs God's wrath for us. You could literally translate it as Jesus Christ was placarded. He was taken, like, just placarded onto the cross, taking our sin for us, taking God's wrath for us. And as a result, God is just because he's punished someone for our sin. Justice has been done. And so as a result, Paul can say later on, he says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In the Old Testament, you get people who sin, like King David, who, who sleeps with um, someone else's wife. And God, God does punish him to a certain extent, but he sort of just passes over his sin and says, Don't, I'll forgive you because you've come to repentance. And you're just like, how can God do that? Just, just imagine that you're this, you're this girl's mum and God just forgives the king. The reason God could do that is because ultimately at some point in the future, someone would bear God's wrath for that person's sin. Someone would bear God's punishment for that person's sin. And then in verse 26, it says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, he could be the perfect, holy God, hating sin and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. You put your faith in Christ Jesus and God is just because he's punished someone else in your place. So as a result, if you put your faith in Christ Jesus, you are forgiven and you're given access to God. Every single person here can have that. If there's anyone here who doesn't have that, you can have that today if you put your faith in Christ Jesus. If you give your life over to Jesus and say, I'm putting my trust in you, I'm not living my old way anymore, I'm going to give my life fully over to you and your purposes, you can have that as a result. The Bible uses the language of being inside Christ. That's literally what it says. It says when, 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 when you see a verse that says in Christ, it literally means inside Christ. It's this image of being put inside Jesus. It's like you're, basically when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your filth. He doesn't see the, the rotten state of your heart. He sees Christ. He sees Christ's perfection. He sees Christ's perfection when he looks at you. And as a result, because Jesus is good... If you are inside Jesus, you can go to heaven. Because good guys go to heaven. None of us are good, but Jesus Christ is good. And because he bore our sin, because he took God's wrath for us, if we have faith in him, we can be put inside him, metaphorically speaking, and go to heaven because we are inside someone good. Romans 6.23 says this. I'm going to end off with this. 
says, for the wages of sin is death. Every one of us deserves that. I want you to understand that. Every single person here deserves nothing else than death. But the free gift of God, undeserved, is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hallelujah. If the band can come back up, we're going to sing a, a few songs of just praising Jesus for his amazing, amazing grace. We're just going to praise God for sending his son to bear our sin, to bear the wrath of God so that we could be set free by putting our faith in him. And during that song, we're going to, we're going to take the bread and the wine. Now, why do we do this? We do this because Jesus commanded us to do it in remembrance of his sacrifice. Before Jesus went to the cross, he had a, he had a meal with his disciples and he took bread and he broke bread and he said, this is my body, broken. And he said, eat this in remembrance of me. And then he, he took the wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for many. And he says, drink this in remembrance of me. And so we're going to do that. If you're a Christian, I'd invite you to come and do that in remembrance of what Jesus Christ has done for us. If you're a Christian and you've, you've come under conviction whilst I was preaching this, maybe in the first part, that actually, yes, I've been living a self-righteous life. I've been living this idea that actually what I'm doing is good enough to get me right with God. And if that's you, I'd like you to repent in your heart before you come and take the bread and the wine. You might say, well, that's a bit harsh. Why, why repent? It's just an attitude. Actually, being self-righteous and thinking I can get to God by my own efforts is basically saying that you don't need Jesus. And we do need Jesus. We definitely need Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to, if you can repent before coming to take it and then just say, Jesus, I'm all yours. I'm all yours. I can't do it on myself. I can't do it on my own efforts. It's not possible. I need you. If you're a non-Christian here today, you don't know where you're at. You, you came in, you, you came in this, uh, this evening and you, you think, I just don't believe any of this. I've got to tell you this, you must be saved. You must be saved, please, because at the moment you are under the wrath of God. You are heading towards an eternity of separation and of just what Jesus bore at the cross. You're heading towards that for eternity. And I don't want that to happen to you. I'm pleading with you, you must get saved. And if that's been resounding inside you, you're just thinking, yeah, okay, I've come to the realisation that I'm, I'm not good I've, I've tried to be righteous. I've tried to think that I'm a good person, but actually I've, I've come to realise that essentially I'm not. Then I would invite you to come and take the bread and the wine as a, as a response, saying, Jesus, I'm going to give my life over to you. I'm going to give everything I have over to you. I'm going to commit my life to you. I'm going to turn away from my old self. I'm going to repent from my rebellious state against you. Some of you might think, well, what will it cost? It will cost you everything. Jesus says, if anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. It means denying yourself. It means dying to your old self and taking up the, the, the cross daily, saying, I'm, I'm prepared to do whatever Jesus wants me to do. It costs you everything, but it's worth it because there's no other way. There is no other way to get right with God than Jesus Christ. So if that's you, I'm, I'm going to invite you to come and take the bread and wine too. But I'll just, I'll just end off, off with this verse from 1 Corinthians 21, and then I'm going to pray. In 1 Corinthians 5.21, it says this. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he made him, who knew no sin, perfect, blameless, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your incredible grace. I thank you for your amazing gift of righteousness that is completely free of charge. We've done nothing to deserve this. In fact, we've done everything not to deserve this. 
Lord Jesus, we would be done for without you. We would be heading towards an eternity in hell, Lord, if you hadn't stepped in, if you hadn't borne God's wrath on the cross, we would be heading towards that wrath. If you hadn't redeemed us, there would be no price paid and we would be heading towards an eternity of separation from God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you went to the cross. You drunk the cup right to the end. You went through with it and as a result, we can be made righteous in you. We can be put inside someone who is good and be reconciled to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your grace. And we just want to worship you. We want to praise you. We want to declare that you are God. You are awesome. You are amazing. And we want to give you all the glory this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.